Welcome to the Colour Tour Brooklyn. Last month I visited Christopher Young, colorist owner of CY Colour. I visited his shop, talked about his kit, the stuff he's working on, Dolby Vision, HDR. We then went to a local watering hole, continued our conversation. And finally, we ended up in Brooklyn Tattoo. It's a first for the Colour Tour podcast. We actually recorded live where Chris was having his latest tattoo creation. I hope you enjoy it. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible color. Chris Young, we're in your shop. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Warren. It's good to see you. Good, good, good. Uh, this is our first ever color tour from Brooklyn. And I'm proud to say that Chris was involved in the concept of this show about five or six years ago. And we actually went out and recorded some test recordings on the streets of Brooklyn and we're back in Brooklyn and you got the space. How did it come around? Uh, well, kind of COVID changed everything. Um, I was working for Running Man Post and I had been there for a couple of years and the remote world of COVID brought everyone to, you know, not working in offices anymore. And I was working from home in my own apartment, had to set up my own color suite uh, and after doing that for six months or so and working staff for someone else, uh, I just decided I wanted to go back to freelance. Um, and in the process of going freelance, I realized there was an opportunity for me to not just freelance at different people's studios, I had an opportunity to open up my own studio because remote work was still a thing. A lot of people were willing to do remote reviews um, and commercial space became cheap. Uh, so there was a, a really good opportunity for me to say, you know what, I can get a two-bedroom apartment and make my office in my apartment, or I can go out and get a, a space uh, and build out something a little bit bigger that had a little bit more potential. So this, this building is a, an old uh, factory uh, that was called the Ken Tile Factory. Right. It was an old tile factory, and it was shut down for many years. And what they did is they converted it and chopped it up into a ton of different spaces. It's now called the Gowanus Creative Arts Studios. Uh, and there are a mixture of artists, painters, photographers, hairdressers, uh, tattoo artists, um, piano teachers, and, and sound composers, and just about every kind of conglomerate of different creative people who all have their own little cut up space anywhere from 125 square feet to, you know, six, 700 square feet. Um, and what I liked about that is we all had our own spaces. You obviously crunched the numbers and looked at what you could build just being the, the, the freelance colorist gun for hire, either doing it at your, your home setup or going into studios and just working off an alley rate as opposed to you taking on the whole projects. And obviously you've crunched it and it obviously was working out better for you to take everything on and say, well, I'll have a piece of all of it. Yeah, uh, so you know, I, I've kind of known these numbers for a long time because I've been in and out of freelance and staff positions. Uh, and I enjoy staff positions because you know, the risk is low for you. You don't have to buy all the gear and the equipment and, you know, do all that work and, the, you know, but you're working for someone else. Uh, and the numbers really kind of come down to, you can work two, three days a week as a freelancer, 
40 to 45 weeks a year and pretty much make the same as a staff member who has to work 50 weeks a year with two weeks vacation. Wow. Um, and since those numbers made sense to me, I went back to freelance, right? Yeah. Uh, because that's easy. But the next step was like, well, how do I turn that into something bigger? Because I don't just want to freelance and I don't want to just go to people's facilities and work on a show for two days and then maybe work on a different show and uh, maybe do a commercial for a half day. Uh, all that kind of booking and running around to different shops um, is very time consuming. And e even though you're technically working because you're moving around, you're not getting paid for a lot of that like mm. scheduling of time. So I decided to open up my own studio. Uh, and what that's allowed me to do is take on assistance and deal with uh, conform and pre-color work. That way, when uh, people's schedules change and things move around, I always have something I can work on and all the pieces are kind of moving. Um, at my studio, I don't do any audio. All the audio is farmed out, so I'm just a color studio for uh, finishing and deliverables. But I always have recommendations for people if they do want to you know, have audio done with someone I know nearby. And what about the visual effects? Same VFX. I have friends that will I'll farm out to for VFX or, you know, now that we're finishing artists more than just colorists, we do a little bit of in-house wow. uh, effects. Dangerous now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, green screens, things like that. Some simple, simple effects. We, you know, Resolve has a lot of great tools. It's a lot easier to paint something out or remove something oh, yeah, totally. without being like, oh, I have to go to a VFX artist. But I do tell clients, I'm like happy to do one or two, but if you have a list of like 50, 20, blurs or paint outs we're going to yeah. you know bill you for vfx time yeah i'm agree i agree we are sitting on this couch in front of the desk and then we're looking at this uh big uh this big tv up front what's this, this is your client telly yep this is a an lg g2 77 inch yeah uh, uh our our space here we're, we're sitting about i guess eight, nine feet away from the TV and behind us uh, up on a platform is my Resolve setup. I have a couple of monitors, a, a Hero monitor, a Flanders, uh, and uh, I sit behind the clients and, and they're looking at this LG on, on the wall. So if they're, they're in here, they're looking around to talk to you or you're just talking. You obviously haven't got eyesight with them because you're both looking. How do you find that in your eye line you've got both monitors? I feel like the calibration between the LG and the Flanders is pretty close. I, I like to leave the Hero monitor only there when I'm doing my, my work. I, when the clients are in the room, I remove it, and I usually look at what they're looking wow, at. Wow, because it is big enough, 77, and the throw from where you're sitting. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of one telly in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't let the clients come up there and see that, and and it, it usually that's that's up there for the show I'm working on. That that yeah. monitor I'll bounce around. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you've got a Resolve, and what you got control panels? Yeah, you I got. I have a a uh, the mini panels and yeah. a couple of stream decks programmed. Um, and this is the main color studio. I also have another little smaller room, which same thing. We have the micro panel in there, and we have a 55-inch LG G2. Uh, so we can kind of all know we're looking at the same thing because of the same television. Now you're networking all the projects together. You're on the Blackmagic Cloud, or you're doing that some other way? 
Uh, I have uh, just an internal uh, project set up for yeah. it. I'm not used. I haven't used the cloud yet for the projects. Yeah. I feel like if the internet went down, I wouldn't be able to work. So I like to have the databases local. So I do have a shared databases. We are doing shared databases, but it's we're running local off yeah. of my own uh, internal network. Yeah. Uh, and we're using a, a FreeNAS Mini uh, XL for our 10 gig Ethernet data between all the systems. And do you have a thing where you conform and prep on one machine or it really doesn't matter what room you're doing what in? Or you, are you doing a pre-grade thing with the assistants and then you come in and, you know, do your hero tweaky pass and how how's that working out? Uh, yeah, so we have the two color rooms and then we have one little conform station, which is mostly for uh, deliverables, um, you know, green screen, keying and stuff like that. Uh, I have my one assistant, Craig, who comes in very freelance and, and does that. Uh, and Kate, who's my other assistant, she comes in, she'll do conforms and pre-grades and color, and then we'll sit down and we'll actually review the shows and make tweaks. Uh, and sometimes I'll sit on the couch as the client and tell her how to make the tweaks, uh, but we'll split up the grading. Uh, yeah. I'll typically take on most of the interviews uh, and I'll let her do a color pass on the body of the show. Uh, that's for the, the reality TV stuff that, that we do here. For your green screen stuff, if there's interview stuff, you're mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. How are you doing that? Are you doing that in Resolve Infusion or are you just doing that in the Resolve color page? Uh, we're doing it in the Resolve color page for the most part. We're using uh, 3D Keyer oh, yeah. uh, and a design node tree by Joey Deanna that kind of allows you to build a light wrap. I've made my own modifications to it. Uh, but it, it works really well because it allows you to add the background as a mat, grade it separately from the person, and you also get a chance to do a little like pre-grading noise reduction stuff before 3D keyer, wrap it all together, and then you know you have your key. For more complicated ones that are being problematic, we often go into Fusion and use Fusion to paint out any kind of issues. Right. You know, blurry hands, we yeah. can kind of clean up by painting them out in Fusion. Uh, and then every once in a while, if it's just really terrible, there's, it's typically because it just was shot that way and Fusion isn't going to do much better keyer. We've tried it. Sometimes it's like, okay, let's try Delta keyer and it's usually more trouble than it's worth because it's the source footage just isn't the quality that you need it to be. 3D keyer works really well for this kind of... Yeah, I'm doing similar things on my show and I've played around and I tend to end up back in the, in the color page on the 3D keyer to get it right. And it's... Mm -hmm. Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, it's good. Big shout out to Joey. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a legend for helping people out with things like that. And uh, so let's tell the folks what sort of shows. What is your your bread and butter sort of workflow? Uh, what type of genres? Uh, I do a lot of uh, docu series kind of work uh, and reality TV. So. A uh, company I used to work for, Sharp Entertainment, does the whole 90-day fiancé universe. Uh, and that has a lot of one-hour, two-hour shows, and they do a lot of those. So that, that kind of work comes through, and I have my assistants do most of that work. Because reality TV just needs a cleanup, uh, and then hand it back over to some producers and EPs that are watching it down. And, you know, it's pretty... Quick turnaround, pretty easy, easy work to clean up and do. Uh, but the, some of the other shows, as as I go into the docu series world, um, doing like Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi, 
Uh, it's, it's a food show, a travel show, uh, and it's a lot of uh, stylized kind of yeah. looks and locations. Um, and that world I find uh, really interesting. And another show we're working on is uh, the Nat, Nat Geo's Photographer. Uh, it's, it's basically following uh, different photographers who have had cover stories for the magazine. So we're talking these absolutely stunning, beautiful images yeah. that we're getting a chance to grade and, and look at a screen in HDR while they still go run around in docu-series, follow them around and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, is, it is a balance. I, I don't work much uh, in the world of, uh, of narrative. Um, that when I worked at staff at some facilities, I did some narrative shows. It's definitely got its own challenges. Yeah. Uh, but the docu-world, docu-series world is, is my, oh, my bread and butter for that, work here. That Nat Geo show, that sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, very exciting. Um, what is, when's that on? It'll, that'll come out in April. We're doing the HDR and Dolby Vision grades now for them, and I believe they're going to release them in April on uh, Nat Geo and Disney. Let's talk about HDR. Is that something that you are now pretty much taking on every, every project? Or is that still obviously a, a, a deliverable requirement, but you see more and more HDRs just as standard? The big streaming networks are starting to request HDR deliverables and uh, some form of Dolby Vision. Um, and I'm finding that with, with the grade of those, it takes a little bit more time um, and takes a little bit more getting used to, but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly seeing a, maybe 20% of the work is going is HDR right now. Right. And did you play around a little bit with it? You reckon, because I hear a lot of you just need hours under your belt and it's a different way, obviously, of working. Uh, do you find the more that you've done, you feel more comfortable and it now just becomes like a normal? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and uh, other colorists that I know have said this and, and, and pre-warned me, so I kind of, took it to heart and uh, hey, HDR, you can make it bright and amazing and all this, but, but really uh, in, the, in the end, once you, once you get into it, like my, my HDR grades are just all about opening up that dynamic range a little bit, getting a little bit more lifted from having crushed blacks, having really beautiful speculars. Yeah. Uh, it does open up into a P3 or Rec 2020 color space, so you can get a little more nicer saturations and color gamuts. But in, in the end, I, I, 250 nits, between 250 and 1,000 nits, there's very little you're doing. You know, if you have a big window, you don't want a thousand nits in the screen hitting you in the face. Um, but it's nice to see those little specular highlights and glints and stuff like that yeah. that really uh, make that more dynamic of, of, an, of an image that in, in Rec. 709 just gets clipped out and, and feels flat and a little bit gray. Uh, so it, it is nice to, to play with and really push the footage. Um, but in the end, it's, you know, like... It just gets basically toned down, and, and what Dolby Vision does is it tone maps it to Rec. 709. I'm enjoying working in a color managed pipeline. The the, the start to the grade is is kind of nice. Uh, you know, you 
Resolve is analyzing the clip. If it knows what the camera source is, it's going to start with a, a color managed look, right? And if you set up your pipeline right, the footage looks pretty good. So you're balancing your image, you're stylizing it. Uh, I feel like the grading time is the same and the only additional work that needs to be done is the trim pass for Dolby Vision, which now does a full analysis. Uh, and now you have to look at the SDR grade and make decisions whether or not you want to make tweaks to the to the color for the SDR. You've been using any new tools? I, I have. I was very, very excited that Dolby Vision uh, changed their analysis and has a balanced analysis or a priority towards highlights or, or darker tones. Um, because uh, interestingly, I... Early HDR, everyone was a little bit of afraid to start with the HDR, then do the SDR grade. Yeah. Uh, so I had done some bespoke SDR grades. I took my bespoke SDR grade, I bump it up to HDR. I had a, a pipeline and a workflow that was color managed that allowed me to do that in ASUS. I grade it in HDR, I hit an analyze, I get my, my SDR Dolby Vision analysis, I match it to my my uh, my bespoke SDR, and I found that it just the analysis was often wrong about what my decision was, what was priority in the image. It loved the highlights. It loved to make skies bright and vivid. Yeah. And I'm like, there are two people talking there, and I would have to use midtone offset to bring them yeah. back up to what my bespoke SDR looked like. Uh, and now the balance tool, I, I've just uh, started using it in uh, the photographer, uh, and it does a really great job of allowing you to have the priority in the image that's not, you can say, I don't want it to be those highlights. So you can prioritize before it does the analysis? You have a, you have a choice in your project setup to choose from how it's going to analyze, but you can always, it's not necessarily recommended, but you can take different clips you can go into the project settings. You can do an analysis balanced on the whole thing. Then you can go back into the project, change it to highlight priority, and then just reanalyze the clips. So it will do them, but it's at the project level that you're oh, making right. the change. Right. Uh, I think Dolby's looking at a way to put it inside their tools, but I just don't think they have the real estate within the, the area for the tools to add those. Yeah. So it might have to be a drop-down menu or something on the side. I've heard them talk about that. But currently... It's at a project level, so you're, you, you're usually just going to choose one and then use your trim tools to, to fix the image however you like. Uh, and it seems like balanced is pretty much the way to go, unless stylistically you know from the beginning highlights are never going to be a priority. Let's just make it extreme, like don't prioritize highlights at all. I forget what it's called in Dolby Vision, but that's what I call it. <laughs> you know, mate, I'm not the sharpest, but I, I don't see an HDR monitor anywhere. And how are you, what are you doing there? Uh, well, we have, I have been looking at the, the new Flanders monitor and I will be getting that. My, my HDR grading that I've been doing, I've been doing over at Blue Table Post. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're not doing that here. I thought maybe you, you hired in a monitor when you needed to do the HDR. Um, so Blue Table, is that local as well? Blue Table is local. They're uh, about a, a mile from here from my studio. So currently when I need to do HDR, uh, mastering, I'll use the, their mastering monitor over there. They have an, uh, the Sony X310 11. And would you do a prep grade and take all that over there and just check it? Or are you doing that on a, a, you know, a lower level HDR telly to do that? Or you just start doing the whole job there afresh? 
Uh, I've been doing the the jobs there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I know some people will will you know work on say an LG or something and then take it and trim it once they get in front of the the hero monitor. Uh, it's certainly capable. These LGs uh, hit about 880 nits. Yeah. Um, but honestly, like you, seeing what's happening at those high speculars uh, definitely changes once you get on a hero a hero monitor. And you, you, we both saw the Flanders last week at NAB New York, and uh, I was blown away looking at it. First time I'd seen it. First time you've seen it. And at twenty thousand, is that something? Uh, you think it's achievable for this your facility size and budgets for you? Uh, I do. Coming down from the 35 range, which most HDRs, monitors, 30-inch HDR monitors were costing, we're starting to see more affordable options for these uh, mastering monitors. Um, for the client side of things, you know, they you can still get it's the Sony A95L, it's hitting like 1,400 nits. It's, it's doable to have a consumer monitor see the 1,000 nits, but they're not tuned the way these mastering monitors are, which is why we, we, we buy them and use them. It's a very niche market. Yeah. Uh, and one of the surprising things, which actually surprised me, and I forget how niche of a market we work in, is when uh, Bram from Flanders said, to put it in perspective, Sony with their HDR monitor, they've sold the most of any HDR monitors. In their best year, they sold 400. Yeah. Wow. So there's not a lot of these monitors out there, and we get to work on them, these highly calibrated, finely tuned, yeah. beautiful mastering monitors. Yeah. Uh, and it's important for us, and it's important for us to know that what we see is the best out there, but we all know that clients are going to look at it on their iPads, their iPhones, and whatever TV they have. Yeah. I totally agree, and I think it. I applaud people like yourself who have got, uh, you know, you've got space, you've invested in gear, you've got staff, and you should be in a box seat to get jobs over iMac warriors who, you know, potentially could all say they could do it, and in theory you can do it and deliver it, but maybe not got the best kit. And so that's kudos for anyone, I think, who's, who's started a shop. So I, I, I like that monitor. I hope it does really well. But 400 units puts that into perspective. You ain't selling that many. Yeah. I wonder they're that sort of money for the amount of overheads and, and staff that they've got going on. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Let's, uh, let's just talk about the, the, the rest of your room. So in here, you <laughs> rent one room. As we said, it's a whole creative space, but you've managed to get the room behind us as well. Yeah, when I when I first moved in here, uh, I had I had this one room, and you know my idea was like, oh, it's it's me. I'm a I'm a colorist. I need a, a room to color in. I want it to be a nice, big space and comfortable uh, to bring clients into. Uh, and then I shortly realized, uh, and it was advice from a friend who said to me, "There's two two three pieces of advice he gave me uh, when I decided to open up my own shop." He goes, one, say yes to everything. He goes, two. If you f can't possibly take on any more work, raise your rates. He goes, because that will start peeling away the time-consuming, lower-pay jobs, uh, and you'll start to realize you'll be getting paid more to work less and on higher-end higher things. So 
uh, I did that. I, st I just, just started saying yes to everything and I needed help. So I started hiring uh, assistants to help me say yes to everything. Uh, and, and thus far, it's, it's kind of worked out. Like, you know, you, there's, a, there's a point where you don't say yes to everything, <laughs> yeah. you know, but part of that has to do with, you know, time, client, and, and, and budget. But I was able to quickly achieve uh, a nice, small uh, post house that I want to keep boutique no more than three to five people max working for me. Great. Uh, so, yeah, so... I, I took over the space next door. There used to be a, an artist who was there, and I had them break through the wall. And so I, I built out another small color room, a little kitchen and lounge, and a, and a server room, uh, and then like a little third conform station. All right, well, let's just have a, let's have a little, little walk around. Yeah. You can do me the tour. Sure. So we're in the main bay. We've got up from our couch, and looking in the corner of the bay here, we look like we've got a a sink, which is unusual. And I've been in lots of color bays in my years. What's the story here? Well, before I was in this space, it was a hairdresser. And when they got rid of the plumbing, they left some water hookups on the wall. And so I looked at it and said, you know what needs to go there? A wet bar. So uh, I decided to install a little bar cabinet. I cut out part of the top, installed a sink, put some shelves above it, and uh, if you notice, I have a little display of different uh, whiskeys up there. Beautiful. Kind of reminds the client that after a job well done, that yes. they might want to add to my collection. I like the, I like the idea. <laughs> or if anybody yeah. wants a drink, there's a, yeah. a little wet bar right here. Very cool. So, well, we sort of walked towards the back, as explained earlier, a slightly raised plinth where uh, the, the colorist will sit, and we're up here, we've got our... Our monitor, our Flanders, and our mini panel, and the stream decks. You love the stream decks, Chris? Yeah, I mean the the, the addition to the uh, mini panel, adding all those extra buttons is um, very very important because as colorists, you know, we we need to be tactile. We need to not be looking at keyboards, and yeah. it's nice to have the extra buttons, uh, especially when you can't work on an advanced panel. Let's walk through. So now this is where you've gone through the wall. Yep. After you, you kicked the artist out. <laughs> My neighbor got kicked out and I took over another, uh, I guess about 400 square feet here. Uh, it has its own separate entrance and when you yeah. first walk in I have uh, a little kitchenette that I, I built yeah. out so that we have some microwave and, and, and fridge here. A place to kind of little hang out and sit down and eat and there's also a little computer in the corner to start, you know, conforms or deliverables. Uh, and then we walk into another room. We're in two a little another smaller little room here. Uh, typical edit bay kind of size, seven by uh, seven by ten ish, uh, and it's uh, another little color room. We have the the LG fifty five inch G two on the wall, and we have the micro panels and some stream decks in here. Right. Uh, and this little corner couch is. Uh, Took me a while to figure out the perfect size and find yeah, for it, but is, it, it, fits, it? it fits perfect. It's just the corner piece of a corner couch. They're great little rooms. How much are you finding that people are coming in to do the reviews and checks, or are you doing a bit of that remote still, or is every job different? Uh, every job's different. I find that the reality TV stuff, uh, producers just want to re review remotely on Frame.io. Yeah. So we just go back and forth doing notes like that. Uh, but when I start getting to documentaries, indie films, um, they'll come in and do a look session. Then I work on it for 
three, four, five days, whatever it is, and then they'll come back for a final review. So how long have you been on the Resolve? I don't know. When did I take your class? <laughs> Quick plug there. Quick plug. Yeah. Gosh, when did I? What, 2012. 2012 is when I started using Resolve. Uh, probably about 2011. Uh, I was pretty green to it and kind of wanted to learn a lot more. So I found this uh, amazing teacher. His name was Warren Eagles. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, before that, I was grading in Symphony on Avid, uh, doing a bunch of reality shows, but I wanted to step up my game. So I started playing with Resolve. Uh, and then, oddly, I left Resolve for a little while and went over to Nakoda because uh, when I was working at Final Frame uh, and Running Man, they both used Nakodas. Um, but they've also had Resolve, so I had to learn Nakoda, and now I'm back fully on Resolve in my own shop. And uh, where do you stand with upgrading when you go to the new versions? Because I know a lot of people are very you know, standoff is a new version out. I know it's hard when you've got a number of different rooms and you're sharing projects sometimes from outside. Do you normally wait until there's a dot release and then go? Or? Yeah, uh, we were on 18, 18 until 18.6 came out. And then when 18.6 and the dots of those came out, we moved to 18.5. Uh, but we are, now at the point where we're, we're I think 18.6 is stable. There was not, there was a pretty seamless transition. 18, 18.5, 18.6, the database doesn't get wonky. I did have some project issues in upgrading them, but I just keep separate databases between the, the versions. Yeah. Uh, and Resolve is so quick to uninstall and reinstall versions so that if you just need to, you just uninstall and reinstall the, the version you need to keep going on a project that's yeah. still in, in a specific spot. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's that is that is one huge thing feature I like about it. Uh, it'd be kind of nice if you could have them installed running background, but I understand why you can't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does uninstall and reinstall very quickly. So I just keep a folder of installers and versions for the different databases in case we have to open them. But I always try upgrading the project if it's not in like some kind of rush. I'll upgrade the project and check it out, and okay, we're good. Yeah. Sometimes it's not, so you're like, okay, we'll just go back to the. Uh, Old version. Are you getting anyone delivering you Resolve projects from editorial yet or not yet? Yes. You are? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, maybe they're, they're doing their own conforms. Some people are doing their own conforms for us before they send it over uh, to try to save a little bit of budget. Yeah. They're pretty rough conforms because they're not really sure how to do everything they need to do to get it to where it is, so we still have to bill them for time to do a conform check. Um, but there, are, there have been a couple of small projects that I have seen graded in Resolve, uh, edited in graded in Resolve. I did a feature actually recently called The Vet um, that just started the film festival circuit and it was fully uh, edited in Resolve. Wow. Yeah. I mean, So I that like was a that. very seamless handover. It's like, here's my project. Yeah, we love that. I love that. That's easier, isn't it? Great. Okay. Let's take a walk. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Should we step outside in the beautiful Brooklyn sunshine? <laughs> Go walk somewhere and get a cold drink? Sounds good to me. Hey Siri, turn off the lights. Yeah, what I, what I like about this space is it's just, here's a hairdresser. This so is you a photography got a, studio. Yeah, you got obviously a lot of interesting different businesses and characters that are in here, which is, which is always good, isn't it? And this place is massive. It's a, it's a labyrinth. Yeah. Well, so we're walking out, folks. We're heading out from, 
from CY Colour and walking back out to the to the main entrance. There's a lot of little doors off, as you can imagine, in a in a shared space like this. Different musicians. You can hear hear a musician working in here now. Yeah. There's a bit of cool street art as we walk straight out of the office. It's a, it's an industrial neighborhood um, that is is currently changing. Uh, we just might get a little bit of a better view, but downtown Brooklyn has all these high rises. In the Gowanus area here, a lot of these old warehouses have been torn down, and the, the area is now slated for three to five thousand units in these different twenty-story high rises. Uh, over the next five years. Wow. And you'll see a lot of that construction uh, a couple blocks away from here. Cheers. Cheers. We have relocated just around the corner from CY Colour in true Colour 2 tradition. And I've got a beautiful, nice, local, hazy, hazy drop. What have you got, Chris? Uh, I got a old Pilsner here, Halyard's finest Pilsner. That's that the bar we're at. So we come around, there's a game on, there's a huge game here. We're on a Sunday, Jets are playing the Giants, and so there's a bit of noise in the main bar. So we've just come out back here. Now, one of the things I never was sure of when I first came to New York is how big Brooklyn is. And I assume Brooklyn to be like a little towny, villagey place, but it's like a huge borough isn't it and there's all these little suburbs in there just just talk a bit about obviously you you grew up here just talk a little bit about the history of it because that's what I didn't get uh, well Brooklyn was uh, you know when, when, when New York first became populated you had Manhattan everyone went to Manhattan uh, Brooklyn was a lot of like a farmland and swampland and uh, as New York City grew, people started pushing further and further out. Uh, and now, I think if you run the math, Brooklyn would be the third largest city in the country if it was its own city. There's t over two to two and a half million people that live in Brooklyn. Uh, and it just keeps getting uh, larger and larger. This neighborhood that we're in right now, Gowanus, um, and I, I live here too, live and work here, is slated to have three to five thousand apartment units in the next five years and the buildings are being built they're 20 story high-rise apartment buildings all within a five to ten block square radius all these high-rises are going in and there's going to be five to ten thousand people moving in in the next five years wow uh, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger so for for those of you who don't know you basically come from manhattan across the brooklyn bridge in the top of brooklyn and then it extends down to like Coney Island and then goes across to the, the airport. Is the airport still out there? Is that still yeah, Brooklyn? Yeah, that'd be considered Queens, actually. Queens. So yeah, JFK is considered Queens. Right, okay. So you go that far across and then Williamsburg, that's sort of towards the north, not far off when you come across. Right. So um, when you first come across from Manhattan, you have the option to take the Brooklyn Bridge. There's also a Williamsburg Bridge and you can cross over uh, yeah. into, into Brooklyn that way. Majority of the population of, of, of Brooklyn lives near Manhattan on, on the outer fringe. That's where all the high rises are. And the deeper you get, it's more suburbs, more houses, uh, still very jam-packed, but a lot more suburb-like. But downtown Brooklyn and, and these neighborhoods like Williamsburg, anything near the waterfront is like living in a major city. It's so high you grew rises. Up, you grew up here? I grew so up in the south end towards Coney right. Island. Uh, yeah. It's technically called Sheepshead Bay, Garretson Beach area. 
uh, and I grew up in a house, so it was a little more, uh, you know, a little more of like living in the suburbs. Uh, and my parents actually just sold the, their, their home and they moved out to Long Island, so they went even further into the, the world of the suburbs. Uh, but I'm, I'm still a, a city boy and, and live in the apartments and, you know. So what was that like back in the 80s around that sort of time? It changed a lot? Uh, Brooklyn has changed a lot. A lot of like, population has exploded uh, and, you know, it's, every, everything's become safer, I would say. Because that was sort of a perception we would have got, because obviously grew up in London, that, you know, it could be a bit of a dodgy area. If you're in certain, certain places, it could be... Yeah, Gowanus, Red Hook, even Williamsburg back in the 80s, not a safe place. And now it's like mommy, me and babies running around with expensive strollers and all that. Very, very, got very fancy. <laughs> very, very ritzy. Uh, you know, that's why, that's why New York uh, colorist rates are so high. <laughs> Everything got expensive. Now, your, your dad was a firefighter, yeah? Yes. Right, so that was, uh, you never tempted to follow in those footsteps and I was I took I took the written exam uh, and I, I did go away to college and when I came back from college and he wasn't sure what I was doing but in the process of getting my college degree I did take the written exam for the fire department test uh, and I was slated to take the physical but instead I decided to uh, just keep going with the theatrical careers because I started by doing um, theater the theater design and stuff before I moved into film and TV. Okay, so how did that transition happen to you when you go, okay, hey, I want to be in in post and then color? Just, you know, you meet different people at different times in your career. I was doing lighting design and, and, and I was a technical director for the Merce Cunningham Dance Company in their studio space in, yeah. in Manhattan. And I had worked for about 10, 15 years doing sound, lights, design stuff, and you know, even performance too. Uh, and a friend was working for a company and they needed an, an assistant editor. And when he told me that I could be an assistant editor, low, low paid assistant editor, making essentially the same amount of money as 15 year theatrical career as a technical director for working for a nonprofit company, I was like, yeah, I'll give that a shot. Uh, and. The, Doing reality TV was not really my thing. I didn't want to edit it. I didn't want to like, you know, I wasn't my favorite genre. I, I like doc, documentary world better. But it just became natural that when they needed to start coloring stuff, that it made sense. Uh, you don't necessarily need to have the to be trained as a colorist, but I think if you work in the arts, your eye can understand color, and if you're good with software, you can learn. Someone can teach you the software, yeah. but having an eye for it is something that doesn't have to, you can't necessarily train someone to do. Yeah. I think when I first met you in that training course, you'd obviously been color grading and doing stuff, and Avid, you could obviously do it, and all that really is is getting you on the newer tools and going, yeah, you're good enough, you've got the confidence to do it. And I think a lot of people, they just need the confidence to go and pitch themselves and say, yeah, I can do it, I can balance it, I'll do these shows, it's fine. And um, I think that's what that's what did it for you, and then you've gone on from there. So you were freelance back then, 2012, but you took a job at Final Frame, didn't you? Because I came and saw you there, and that was when you made you move on to Nukoda. Yeah. Big big projectors and lots of storage and London shop, New York, Manhattan shop. Yeah, yeah they're, they're a big company. They do a lot of uh, documentaries. Uh, 
and they work in you know DCI theatrical projection, uh, and it was an interesting start. I, I was hired, and a guy who owns the company, Will Cox, went on vacation to Australia and said, "Learn Nakoda, here you go." And I was like, "What?" I didn't have like a specific show to work on. I was given a month, and I was doing a lot of like online stuff. Like that's yeah. how you got to learn. You got to get your, yeah. got to get dirty in it. It's like I could spin the wheels and the dials. That makes sense. But learning all the technical yeah. things to make Dakota do what you want it to do, uh, you know, takes a little time. So he said, "Hey, just you know, play and practice and help with whatever people need. You know, we need to QC some stuff, watch down things. We were still laying stuff off to tape back then." So, you know, watching down an HDKM SR layoff and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, I did a lot of great work there. Uh, and then I was there for about a year and a half. And then for personal reasons, I, I needed to step away. And uh, I decided to go back to freelance. Did that for a couple of years and then decided to go back to another staff job. And that's when I worked uh, with Troy Thompson over at Running Man. Running Man, yes. Running Man Post. And they were in Dakota as well. Uh, and that's kind of what got me the job there. There's very few Nakota uh, colorists in in the city, so yeah. when when you find someone who's available and you need someone, it's uh, it was I guess an easy, you know. Yeah, here's one for the teenagers listening. Uh, Nakota was probably right up there with Filmlight in in London, mm -hmm. and we're talking about oh five oh six sort of time. And they were neck and neck with Filmlight in London. They both had equal share, probably. It was a big rivalry. It was a healthy rivalry. And um, they then got bought by D Digital Vision, and it still carried on. And then it was getting picked up. We had a couple in Australia. It started to infiltrate here. There was a few coming in. Mm -hmm. But then, obviously, Filmlight got in. But then Da Vinci came out. It was around that time when, obviously, Resolve came out. And it was very cheap. And that, and it essentially... Um, that's what happened uh, in the end that Resolve started to eat away at their market oh, to compete with something that's free, obviously. Um. Uh, I, I will, I'll give you a little plug for uh, Nakoda. Uh, their restoration tools are phenomenal uh, and you can actually use them in Resolve now. Yes, and they're available as plugins. Yes, they're available as plugins. So if you do a lot of uh, DocuWorld stuff that needs restoration, uh, their their tools are phenomenal. Yeah, I don't know if you could still go and buy a standalone new coder. I know if you buy their restoration package with a with a, a all the Phoenix tool sets, then it probably comes in that, but whether you, you actually would, there's obviously systems around that people are looking to go and jump on a job or they see an opportunity to get on one. As I always say, it's still just coloring. Mm -hmm. You just work around and do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say to anyone coming up who's maybe getting a job and it's not the software they use? It is a huge jump and you're gonna feel uncomfortable. What would you say, just do it and try and jump on there and you'll, you'll be okay? Uh, know know your, your, your limits, right? Like talk to people about the technical help that you'll need. Make sure you set up your project right, that if it's color managed right, that it's, you know, that your specs are right. It, you know, the simplest thing is a Rec. 709 deliverable. There's not much to it. You set your gamut to 2.4, your Rec. 709, you're, you're good. It's once you start getting into higher technical kind of deliverables where you're working color managed or ACES pipelines and yeah. you have different deliverables that could be NAMS, GAMS, or Dolby Vision with yeah. XMLs or whether or not yeah. it's an XM, uh, you know, like... A, 
that, you know, all these deliverables is where it gets confusing. But the grading tools themselves, every panel has three dials. You have your lift, your gamma, your gain, and yeah. you can grade something just using your tools internally. People go crazy with all these plugins and subtractive color, additive color, oh, let me get this plugin, let me get this LUT, let me do this. All that is right there in front of you in those dials, in those curve tools. Like, yeah. you, you know, learn to use them and see what they do. Put gray on the screen and yeah. play with your dials because all of that's not going to change across yeah. any grading platform. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. I'm a big fan of the, I'm a big fan of the ramp. Put a gray ramp from mm -hmm. guys and just work out what that tool does. Yeah. If you understand it, you're going to use it. Uh, and, and Resolve has added new tools, and they keep adding more tools. They have the HDR tools now, and, and, and you can control their pivot points of how they affect speculars, highlights, uh, you know, what do they call it? Specular, highlights, light, yeah, something. There's like six of them, and each one is just basically a different curve. Let's talk about you using those tools. I am. Uh, the specular, it, what's really nice about them, what I like, and it, it's similar to the curve tools, but even more isolated. You can reduce saturation in the speculars, reduce saturation in the highlights, reduce saturation in, in, in the whites, in the darks. And, and they're very isolated. Now those, they do have that in the curve tools, but is it's not as isolated. So it's kind of nice to be very tight and yeah. then being able to dial in exactly yeah. with a knob. Oh, let's open it up a little bit more. Like move that pivot point. They, they feel to me they're not as panel friendly. Is how well is that mapped to your mini now? It feels like very mouse. And how I've used them. So they're mapped to the Mini. The Mini only has the two screens. So for those HDR tools, you have to go next page, next page. Because yeah. really, those five or six different levels, you want to have on your own screens, but you don't have it. And I will say, I went to, saw you in NAB New York, and uh, there is a panel out there that's for PTR camera control that is the shell of a four screen panel right. like so you have the mini panel which has yeah. their their two screens yeah. and their three wheels yeah there's a bigger panel that resolve has but it's actually for camera control and camera switching but it it looks like it's ready and ripe to add a fourth trackball and i, I keep I, I bug them and they're like yeah it looks like it and i was like we'll see you and me i tried to catch uh we're, we're looking bobby. for that ten thousand dollars i tried to get bobby z there and i said to him i'll see you showing the new panel nab and he goes oh, oh. and then try to catch him out but as i've been saying for oh mate as long as i've known you there'll be a new panel coming soon yeah. it's gonna be about 10 grand it's gonna be sexy as 10 grand they're a hardware company you, NAB is going to be there. When I saw you NAB four or five years ago, it's going to be there. It's going to, I, I'm putting money, folks, get your money down. It's going to be there. 2024 NAB, sexy new panel, about 10 grand. Every year we keep saying it. Oh, mate, it makes sense. I mean, they, they, you build it, they will come, they say. Yeah, you know they what, are there. You know what killed my, my hopes of that coming anytime soon is when they released the keycaps. Mm -hmm. Once they sent out the keycaps for the, yeah, the advanced panels, I'm like, yeah, they're not going to make a 10 grand version. That, Chris, that's just to keep the people who paid the 30 grand, right? A lot right. of money. Most expensive thing they sell, pretty much. Just keep those people happy, which is great. They spend a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Give them a few, three more years' life out of their panel. 
And then if anyone decided, you know, okay, if you're billing well enough and you paid that, you might go, well, I'm like, if it's 10 grand for a new panel, man, that's going to be cool. I'd do it in a heartbeat. I well, just want a, that fourth track ball, and you know yeah. why? It's for, like, sizing shapes and offset and yeah. all that. Just that. Yeah, and it, it, it obviously needs a serious thought, but I definitely think it would be on their radar to do. You know, people like yourself got two stream decks sitting there of a mini. You need somewhere in between the big one, the mini with the stream decks, slick design-looking thing that looks cool. And it just adds, you know what it's like. Client comes in, you got a panel sitting there, you've got it just it just helps the whole thing. Oh yeah, okay, we know what we're doing here. And that And it makes it makes it makes your, your job quicker. I will say the yeah. stream and I would probably still have stream decks, right? Yeah. Because within those stream decks I'm programming things that don't necessarily resolve doesn't even think to put as a button, right? Yeah. And and what Stream Deck is doing is going, go to menu, go down, arrow, 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 do this, because it's not something in their key that you can make a keyboard shortcut yeah. for. Or you have it's doing multiple keyboard shortcuts, which yeah. is go to endpoint, add an edit, and it's just like you press one button and it goes, does all that, and yeah. then matches back. Like Because it's something as a conform person you need all the time. But as a colorist, Resolve is going to make the most beautiful, simple, elegant panel and make your workflow so much quicker. All it does, it just makes you less tired, makes you more creative. It doesn't necessarily make you any faster, but you're just not focusing with a mouse. And people say, oh, it's a lot of money, but you know, if it really, if you're coloring and you're billing and you're not, you're not working on a panel or any sort of index thing, sure, you're not, you're not serious. Because, mate, eight, de eight hours on a mouse, crikey, you're tired, <laughs> aren't you? Well, didn't didn't you uh, start by color timing? Yeah, no, I never did any color timing. No, you didn't. No, okay. no, I missed that. But uh, I would have liked to have done. But uh, I like the I like uh, the fact that you know you can just look at your monitor and the panel. You're not looking at that Google yes. all the time. Yeah. Because that's how it used to be. You know, you couldn't do much with the mouse in the old days. You had to have the big panel. And the advantage was you just looked at the screen and you got the muscle memory and you knew what you were doing. Right. But all that focusing your eyes and moving and refocusing and different colors and looking, and it just makes you tired. I, I will say, as a, as a colorist having to be, need to do many things, I, I do have a dual monitor set up and then a, a grading monitor. I would love to get rid of the dual monitor setup when I'm grading because I don't want all that monitor light near me. Like yeah. I, I bring them down so dark that if I turn the lights on in my suite, I have to change the setting on the, the GUI monitors just so I can read them because it's, yeah. they're so dark when I grade. Because I'm not looking at anything but the hero monitor and the panels in front of me. But when I conform, I need to be able to have two monitors yeah. to deal with all the conform stuff that I need to do. Yeah. Uh, so the one nice thing, and I'm trying to reinvent my space a little bit. Is, something's uh, good. Yeah, something's something's good. going on. No, not the New England game. Um, well, maybe the New England game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so when I rethink my space and I like to move stuff around, because, you know, mouse clicking and all that, I change my mouse off and try to keep my workflow different. But having a second separate conform station has been really nice because it allows your, your grading room to just be for grading and then the other system is just for conform and so you know you have your stream decks your pre-builds your quick keys the dual monitors the real estate that you need to do conform and it's nice to the you know that i can have a grading suite that i would like to have is just 
one GUI monitor and a hero monitor. I'm still working on like building, you know, how I'm gonna yeah. you know, make that work. Yeah. Quick shout out to our sponsors who help make it all happen in no particular order. Able Cine, FX PhD, Maxon, Filmlight, SohoNet, Portrait Displays, Flanders Scientific, and ISO. So, Chris, we've relocated. <laughs> well, this is very different for the Color Tour podcast. This is a first. Where are we? Oh, we're at Brooklyn Tattoo. Um, sitting here getting a tattoo. Um, Brooklyn Tattoo's been here for how long, Willie? been here for seven years and in the neighborhood of 21. Great. They're in good hands. Yeah. <laughs> in theory. I feel like a pinup calendar model or a land like this. Jay, you, you're looking good, buddy. Hey, uh, you have Yes. Yes. This this podcast's gonna go top of the charts. <laughs> Mate, it's gonna be number one. I've been born and raised in Brooklyn, grew up here a long time, and the tattoo that I'm getting right now is a little homage to my grandfather. Uh, he was a tankman at the New York Aquarium, so the tattoo I'm getting is a picture from a book of him uh, and a walrus named Uki. So I volunteer at the aquarium twice a month, uh, go down there and dive in their tanks and help clean them out and, and do some work for them, volunteer work. Uh, so this is kind of a little homage to uh, to him. Right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, and this one's going to be a, a grayscale, a lot of shading. The photo is uh, has a patina to it, like an aged black and white photo look. Yeah. Uh, so not looking to fill it all in, but want it like shaded. So Willie's got a a lot of a lot of work to do, and and you know, as a colorist, sometimes the hardest jobs are to color black and white. Oh, yeah. And we're not coloring it. It's about getting the right contrast yeah. and. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I often I often do that. I'll switch the when I'm struggling with an image that's very colorful. I'll actually make my monitor black and white, just so I can see where the different, yeah, you know, tones like live. Because uh, sometimes all that color can distract you from yeah. how to best balance the image. Good call. So let's just round out our conversation before you. Uh one thing I always ask uh, anyone who comes on the tour is your best and worst experience in colouring. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you got a, a great session, bad session, for whatever reason, do you look back fondly on or not? Uh, yeah, I think I think we all have some hard sessions uh, and you know great collaborative sessions. I I definitely find that sometimes we have clients that are you know difficult to to work with they're very particular they want to micromanage it they're not there to use your creative input uh, and you become a button pusher for them now we can learn a lot from those jobs because if we if we trust them and be like okay let me do all your button pushing sometimes you might might surprise you right the you'll you'll try something new or different uh, but then other times you're just a button pusher for them um, so it can be a difficult industry to, to work in, but it's always great to work with great collaborative people. Um, I find that, you know, you get the best results when uh, you work with people who, who trust you and want to work with you. One of the best experiences I had working with um, Padma Lakshmi on Taste the Nation, she would come into the color sessions and she'd be like, oh, like she now her issues, she has very high, like her brow makes her eyes very dark. 
and she always wanted to make sure that you could, you know, see her eyes. And she would be like, hey, and she would trust me, be like, oh, you know, she knows it's time and money and all the energy yeah. it takes to do some of that work, the detail work, and she would, you know, trust me to do it, and she wouldn't have to sit there and, and watch the whole thing. Um, and when everyone's, you know, grateful and excited about people's time, uh, those are always, always the best experiences. Um, but I think we, we learn a lot from the, the hard ones and, and, and the fun ones on, on how to, uh, you know, be better at our, at our craft, right? Yeah. And, and working with the people that you want to work with. Yes. You know, we don't always have that choice starting in the industry. You just got to take the jobs, right? Yeah. right? But you know, as you grow into the industry, you start to realize, like, oh, I don't, I don't need to work with that client again because they don't respect my time or my my energy, uh, and they just want someone to push buttons for them. Uh, hilarious one, uh, and you know, wouldn't mention any names, but yeah. I mentioned earlier was, uh, you know, they wanted to look a certain way, and it looked a certain way on set, uh, and I was, I was sent. Uh, an iPhone photo of the monitor on set, and they said, make it look like this. Don't even know what to do with that, uh, because the contrast is off. It's an iPhone photo of a monitor. Of a monitor, so it's an iPhone photo of a monitor of the actual set. Yeah, there's really not much you can do. It's like, okay. Uh, so, you know, but part of our job is getting people to understand how we accomplish our jobs and what we need to accomplish our jobs. So, you know, you just, you can laugh it off, but you can also politely tell them like, hey, well, that doesn't really work for me. Is there another image that you can show me that, yeah. that is going to help us get there? You know, as colorists, we work with a lot of different people in the pipeline of post-production. And, you know, everyone works a little bit differently and we need to help show people how how we work and, and how what's the best way to, to get you know better results and hopefully they learn from it you know especially like you know green screen shooting when they put someone in a striped shirt and like you know it's there's there's things you can do to fix it but then sometimes the best thing is just to teach someone what not to do yeah and here's the problems that happen I'm gonna wrap this up this has been really fun and uh, coming in to see uh, what's all about a tattoo would be great my first time in a tattoo. Oh, I might have to come back next time on it, <laughs> We'll get we'll schedule you for a tattoo here. <laughs> Alright Warren, it was great great to see you. Oh, it's been brilliant. Thanks a lot, Willie. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me into your space, you guys. Uh, it's been fun. Thanks a lot.